Welcome to the Freedom to Rise podcast, a production of United Way Suncoast. Here's your host, Chief Impact Officer, Emery Ivory. For more than a decade, he's represented Pinellas County in the state legislature, including 10 years as a state senator. When he first entered politics, he promised to take people to the woodshed if they tried to increase taxes or regulation. He's held true to that stance, but he's also evolved on other issues and developed an independent voice in Tallahassee. Today, he joins us to talk about housing, property insurance, education, and a topic of great interest, prison reform. Senator Jeff Brandis, we are so pleased to welcome you to the Freedom to Rise podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. So 2022 represents your last, at least for now, uh, legislative session. And so I know you have told reporters that you might run again after your four children are all out of school. But what are your thoughts as you look back on your time in Tallahassee? And is this emotional for you? No, it's not. I mean, I, you know, I, I've I, over the last 12 years, I've worked really hard to try to identify a handful of problems. I'm, you know, the interesting thing for me is. You know, when I first got elected, I thought my work was going to be on jobs, insurance, and, and education. Um, and what it really found is I found a lot of success in working in those areas that nobody else wanted to really work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and many of those areas take years to work on. Uh, and transportation, we've, we've made Florida really a leader in the country in so many areas of transportation, especially thinking about how transportation is going to unfold in the future. But in other areas, we've really struggled to make progress. For example, criminal justice, prison reform. It's been an area that we've worked on, but, you know, feel a lot like I'm pushing the rock up the hill only to watch it roll down again. But but we keep identifying it and keep talking about it. And sometimes we just got to wait for the right window to open. And in the world of property insurance, we continue to push the Florida legislature to make changes only they can make um, in order to make housing more affordable for Floridians. So I think the fascinating thing that I've learned over the, the last few years, especially in, in Tallahassee, is many things in Tallahassee. Uh, the thinking is very tactical and not very strategic. So we don't think about the long-term implications and we really just kind of focus year to year, but there isn't a more strategic plan to many areas of public policy that I think Floridians would expect there would be a strategic plan to, to address. So, so Senator, when, when we visited your office uh, with other United Way leadership and officials, one of the first topics we ask you to address involved affordable housing. And, and you had some great thoughts and ideas about how to address this issue and some of the solutions. And one of which, for example, was, you know, looking at how we can possibly block grant Sadowski to local municipalities, and, you know, money so that they can tailor their own approaches uh, to affordable housing. And, you know, also the pandemic has resulted in rising rental rates, contributing to you know, the ongoing eviction crisis, which we also discussed with you, and a housing shortage, housing surplus shortage. So are are there solutions to this issue that you believe can be crafted in Tallahassee? Absolutely. I think the challenge we see in Tallahassee is that there's a one-size-fits-all really to affordable housing uh, that we we offer right now in Tallahassee. And, And unfortunately, we have 67 different counties, all with different needs, all with different varying needs. And we need to let the counties determine what, what's going to best suit that individual county and get away from the one-size-fits-all policy. You know, we, we talk about building apartments, but we really don't build apartments at scale in Florida. You know, maybe yeah. seven or 800 last year. The need was probably 50,000. 
we'd say that 65% of, of some of these dollars has to be spent on new home purchases. Well, look, for many of the residents in my community, what they need is first and last month's rent. Uh, buying a new house is the farthest thing from their mind, but there's whole sections of, of resources that are cut off to them simply because they're not in the market for a new, for a, for a home there. They just need rental assistance. Yeah. And so generally my, my conversation revolves around stop talking about building affordable housing and start talking about market rate housing and then providing mm-hmm. rental assistance to individuals because if we start talking about building a new affordable housing project, it might take five or six years to build. And that's if we can identify the land, find the financing, find the developer, get the mm-hmm. plans drawn up, actually get the construction done, get the certificate of occupancy and move in. Right. I mean, it's a multi-year process versus if I shift to rental vouchers, which I can basically start in a couple months yeah. and I can get you moved to your project. And Oh, if I want to build something, maybe I build 100, maybe 200 units, which helps those 200 people. But for everybody else, it it takes away all the resources that are available to help them. So it's really about meeting people where they are. Uh, The other challenge when you build an affordable housing project is you you have to solve two problems. The first problem is where, where, where is the affordable housing project going to be and how big is it going to be? And the second project is the second problem is how do I get people from point A to point B? So I have to actually solve their transportation problems too. And it allows, it doesn't allow people to move out of the school district to move closer to their work or any of the other issues that that they're currently facing. So I really want to focus on how do we build more market rate housing? How do we increase density in communities? And then how do we help people get the rental assistance that they need in order to, to make it work? And that keeps the state out of, you know, picking the drape colors and what color the, 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 you know, floor is. And it allows them to just look at people's income and figure out what they need in order to get first and last month's rent. And then what, what additional do they need to make ends meet until they can make it on their own? What do you think are some of the barriers to uh, the solutions that you just, you just talked about? I mean, you know, rental costs are continuing and so many families are being priced out on the market and there's no place for them to go. Sure. Well, I think one of the barriers is that the state actually doesn't fund ongoing research at any of our public institutions on how to solve these problems. Mm. I don't think we bring the best ideas every year to the, to the state. This is why I think 67 counties are going to do it better than one state government. Because at least I would have 67 different ideas and I would have rural counties that would be facing a totally different problem than I have urban counties. And so how do we how do we identify the best practices in 67 counties versus the legislature, which established essentially these programs a decade or more ago and have just put them on, on repeat over and over again, they continue to fund them, even if they're not the right thing to fund. And so one, I would focus on how do we get research dollars being spent by public institutions, by our universities, Mm -hmm that actually study and research this problem and bring forth to the legislature and to the counties their best thinking, because it's going to differ between urban and rural. It's going to differ between Broward and Pinellas. So we need to be thinking about that. Two, how do we block grant the, the, the money down to the counties to help the counties address and identify their problems and then build the plan that tailored to that county, not tailored to the state, but tailored to the county. So if we can do those two things, then I think we'll have a meaningful pro- we'll have meaningful process and make meaningful progress in addressing the affordable housing problems of Florida. 
But you know, there's a variety of other strategies, but it starts with what's the vision, what's the best practice, what's the research and the data say, and not we're going to build one apartment complex every five years that has 120 units in it, which is what we currently do today in most markets. Interesting. So, you know, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we work very closely with the University of South Florida and they provide a lot of data that has helped inform some of the work that we're doing, you know, with the eviction crisis. So that data is so important. And then even our Alice report that we produce every other year that really talks about what it takes for a family to afford to live in different counties throughout Florida. So again, all important data and research. And I know that rising rental rates aren't the only aspect impacting homeowners, right? Property insurance continues to rise. And I know that that's an issue among your legislative priorities. So again, your thoughts about how this needs to be addressed. Well, I think if you think about renters, see the renters don't get the benefit of a homestead tax exemption. So today, homestead property can only go up 3% in value for the taxes versus a rental property, which can go up 10% of your in value for taxes. And we know many of these houses are capping out at that 10% because at least in the Tampa Bay market and, and most of South Florida, housing prices have gone up 15 to 25% this year in many markets. And so they're, they're feeling the full weight of that increased appreciation and they don't get the benefit of any of the exemptions. And so that falls heavily on the backs of renters. And this is why, you know, we're seeing rents going up 25, 30% across the board. Two, we have this property insurance crisis. And let's spend a minute talking about how bad things have gotten in this space. Florida represents 8% of total U.S. property claims. Just 8% of U.S. property claims happen in Florida. But we are almost 80% of the litigation in the country. Wow. That litigation is what's driving higher property insurance rates. Uh, There's a reason that the insurance industry lost $1.5 billion in Florida over the last year, and they will lose $1.5 billion this year without a major storm. Let that sink in. Even before they've had a major storm, they are losing money. And they're in this race. How can I raise rates fast enough to keep going with the litigation that I'm seeing? Citizens Property Insurance, the state's own property insurance company, gets sued 900 times a month. Now I I don't know about I you. Know that. If I got one, if I got one lawsuit a year, I would probably be bankrupt, right? But they get sued nine hundred times a month, and this is what's driving up property insurance rates. And it's a lot of it's fraud. The state doesn't do enough to fight fraud on the property insurance front. But really, it's really an issue that only the legislature can address, and we need to do that by allowing companies to modify their what they can offer clients. On roofs, we should allow for actual cash value because what's happening now is if you have a roof that's older than 10 years, even if you have 15 years of life left on that roof, your property insurer will come to you and say, hey, listen, you got to put a new roof on. Well, wait a second. I got 15 years left. I don't have $30,000 to put a brand new roof on. They're they're saying, listen, we're not going to insure you unless you do. And so what ends up people say is, well, I'm going to go to citizens because they will write me. And that's what's leading to citizens growing by 5,000 policies a week. It will be at a 1.5 million policies by the middle or the end of next year, which will then basically threaten the credit rating of the state and has all these other collateral problems that go along with it. So we have a real property insurance crisis. Most of the companies are leaving the market or shrinking what they're doing in the market and pulling back from certain areas. 
Uh, and, and, you know, we're, the legislature has to step up and solve this problem. And it's largely, how do we reduce litigation? Wow. I did not know that. Well, I mean, it's it amazing. was last yes. years because as property insurance rates rose, people were able to refinance mm-hmm. because of low interest rates. And so their escrow payments didn't change, but they're not going to go much lower than where they are today. Mm-hmm. And so over time, you're going to see, especially at a 30% rate increase, people are going to be paying thousands and thousands of dollars more uh, for, for property insurance. And it's going to make a lot of areas unaffordable for people within, with in, in the middle class. They're just not going to be able to afford the housing in those regions. Mm. So just to change the topic up a little, you know, at United Way Suncoast, uh, we view stabilizing early learning uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a real important critical step in addressing a number of, of issues. Uh, not only can it improve education overall, but it can help spur the economy and reduce labor shortages because greater access can allow more families and parents to get back to work. So in, in your view, how can the state help increase the quality and capacity of childcare? One of the biggest issues we're facing right now is just providers and finding enough providers. And, and that's a critical issue across the state, whether it become in, uh, teachers or nurses or you know, police officers, we have a critical shortage of, of the, that staff, and that's partially related to compensation. We have to pay more. That's a key piece. Two, we have to rely on private providers. The state isn't going to be able to publicly fund or publicly provide the service to more individuals. So we have to, prov- we have to fund appropriately, and then we have to find private providers that are willing to provide the service. That is absolutely key. But, but I think those are, I mean, in the short term, those are probably the two best ideas I have on those. It's just making sure that we're identifying better private providers and then funding appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, uh, as you mentioned, got to figure out a way to pay providers more and the childcare staff. Yeah. In order to recruit and retain them. And all of that is directly related to quality as well. Absolutely. So So finally, as as we sort of wrap up, I wanted to ask you about prison reform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a cause that I know has long been a focus uh, for you and how, how really dire is the situation in the state of Florida? Oh, it's pretty dire. We have, so about 70% of our facilities are currently in what they call emergency staffing, which means that we are basically running a skeleton crew at those facilities. We're calling in people on their, uh, on their days off. And if they don't show up or we're, we're docking their pay or we're, we're penalizing them by writing them up for not showing up, uh, even on their day off, uh, we are, we have about 2,000 inmates currently in county jail that should be in prison, but the prison cannot take without issuing emergency releases right now. That means we have hundreds of inmates sleeping on the floor. I think Sheriff Galtieri in Pinellas County said that he has about 100 inmates that should be in prison that are sleeping on the floor in his jails today. And so we've backed up the entire prison system because the prison system simply can't accept because they can't, not that they don't have enough beds, they don't have enough staff. We're 5,800, almost 6,000 correction officers short today, which wow. means people are working overtime. The overtime is, you know, they're working their days off. They are, they're stretched incredibly thin in these facilities. And that leads to a variety of other problems, which means you, yeah. don't, you can't, if, you know, if you're providing just basic level oversight, that means you don't have corrections officers to supervise education, which means you don't have education. And so you have a ton of inmate idleness 
And essentially, we don't have a Department of Corrections in Florida anymore. We essentially have a Department of Warehousing Mm. that just warehouses people. And most of the prisons that I've toured have about 1,500 inmates. And I'm lucky if I see two or three teachers. Oftentimes, I see zero educators. So you say, all right, well, how many people can three teachers educate if you've got 1,500 inmates? And the answer is like 60, maybe 70 inmates to get any type of education during the week. What do the other you know, 1,430 do? Well, they nothing. That's the answer. They, they basically do nothing. They're, they're idle. Well, you know, there's the saying that idle's hands are the devil's playground. And that plays right. out in the prison system as well, right? If people are idle, that means gangs get to do more. And, you know, people are getting, they're filling that time with something. And it's oftentimes not productive thing, things. One of the big challenges we have right now is just the fact that we have a half of my prison population, 40,000 of my 80,000 inmates in Florida cannot read at the sixth grade level. So we have a huge literacy problem. So, you know, let's solve that one thing. But we have so many challenges inside the Department of Corrections. And again, just like affordable housing, there isn't a long-term plan for corrections in Florida. There isn't independent research being done by a public university on best practices of prisons in Florida. And this creates a system that is absolutely in collapse. There's a reason we've lost five wardens in the last year. I mean, up until, you know, in 2021, we were losing a warden a month, the first five months of the, of the year. And we just lost the most experienced corrections official in the country and secretary Mark Inch, who, you know, retired. And I think he retired largely because he was frustrated by the lack of resources being spent inside the prison system. So it's really a challenge, but there are real solutions. I mean, there are solutions that the legislature could implement. For example, it could allow for elderly release. Many states offer elderly release. Really, crime is a young man's game. You don't see a lot of 70-year-old bank robbers. And so many of these people have served decades in the prison system. They are no longer a threat to the public. You know, I, I would challenge you, there are very few crimes by which somebody should serve their entire life in prison. I think most of us would agree. But we have literally thousands of people serving life sentences who did not commit rape, who did not commit murder, that are serving life sentences in Florida under Florida's prior release reoffender law, mm. where they were arrested at 18, they committed another crime at 21, and they went to trial and they got life in prison for a, a, a situation that was not rape, that was not murder. That was probably not even attempted murder in many of these cases. So that, that's an area we could address. We could address conditional medical release. I mean, simple things like just streamlining the conditional medical release process. I've been to prison. I've seen inmates that were suffering from stage four cancer, bedridden, that we could not get out of prison under conditional medical release, given the state's current process. And so how do we streamline that? But then we've got to look at other opportunities, for example, second chances. How do we give people second chances? How do we recognize that character is not static and that people change? The people that are in prison are not the same at 40 that they were in their 20s. And so how do we have a process that allows judges to look at the overall system, it's at the, these individuals themselves, look at their last 15 years of track record while they've been incarcerated, and then adjust the sentence so that it's appropriate? I'm somebody who believes that a sentence that's too long is just as unjust as a sentence that's too short. Mm. So how do we tailor the sentence to the individual crime. 
And that needs means we have to add a, a, another piece, which is we need to offer judges more discretion. Today in Florida, judges are limited to the mandatory minimum sentences to structure that's, that the state has. They essentially have no discretion. The wild thing about this is that many of our judges were state attorneys. And state attorneys have incredible discretion about what they can do. They can waive mandatory minimums. They can cut plea deals. They can do all kinds of things. But as soon as they move from a state attorney to a judge, we remove all that discretion from them. And to me, that isn't right. We should allow judges to be judges, to have discretion. They're that independent third party that's supposed to evaluate and adjudicate these cases appropriately and then provide the appropriate sentence. But in many cases, the legislature's tied their hands and will not let them provide the appropriate sentence. So we have a lot of challenges inside the Department of Corrections. Number one is staffing. Number two is facilities. Number three is programs. And then finally, reentry. Our reentry system today is 50 bucks and a bus pass. And nowhere in the research and nowhere in the data does they say it, does that does, does anything say that that's a successful reentry program? We know that the two leading things that can help people reenter society are do they have a job and what kind of family are they going back to? Right. Well, when half your inmates can't read, it's really tough for them to find a job. And we really are never going to be able to control the family they go back to. So we need to be focused on those things that, one, help people get employment, find employment, maintain employment once they leave the prison system. We don't do that today. We've got to do a better job of that. And, and we've got to have a reentry system that ties somebody to a mentor in their community that will help yeah. them reenter society. Listen, people have been incarcerated in 20 years. They've never seen an iPhone in their life. They've not, they haven't been on the internet. And yet that's an everyday process for you and I. We've got to reintroduce them to them. We've got to get them a bank account. We've got to get them back involved in society so that they can get a job, work, live, and be productive members of society. Because if we don't, what that happens is that 50 bucks is gone in four hours and they're living under a bridge someplace. Wow. Yeah. Learned so much. Boy. It's a lot. So, yeah, it really is. It really is. And, uh, you know, but. Hi, just one last question. So are, are there any efforts? I mean, and you've talked about a lot that's going on with the prison system. Is there a reason to be optimistic? Are there any efforts to address some of these issues? Uh, because you're absolutely right. Well, the folks that we see through our programs are programs who are, are individuals who have just been released uh, from prison. And you're right. No education, uh, unable to read, not a strong family support system. You know, it's no going to be very, very difficult. No, no place yeah. to go back to when they leave. I mean, the fascinating right. thing is how everything kind of leads back to everything else, right? So right. property insurance is high. So that leads to unaffordable housing, which means inmates who get, get out of prison can't find a place to live when they leave. And so they live on the streets. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a criminal record. And as they well. have a criminal record, right? And they can't get a job. Mm-hmm. So we have to have strategies that address this all along the, the board. But we have to have a vision for what we want the state system to look like. And I, you know, what I'm hopeful is, even after I leave the legislature, that I can help create that vision going forward. One of the things I want to do is start a 501c4 that focuses on these issues, transportation, criminal justice, affordable housing, property insurance, that looks at some of these problems and tries to, to kind of create that longer term vision. One of the challenges I've seen in Tallahassee is that in, up here, Everything is tactical and nothing is strategic. How do we build 
a strategy and then build policies, tactical policies that play towards that larger strategy. To me, it's the most important thing that Florida is missing is that we have to have a strategy for dealing with these varying issues. And it can't just be tactical because tactical things that don't cause towards a lot of strategies are oftentimes a waste. And so much of what I see up here is just waste. And we can, we've got to do better. Well, Senator Brandis, look, I've really appreciated having this conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time. Obvious that you have a lot of knowledge, but also a lot of passion about these issues. And certainly your presence is going to be missed in one way, certainly in Tallahassee. But I suspect that we're going to see that passion going to work in uh, other ways. So uh, really, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being with you. And so coming up, I'll deliver the big takeaway with some closing thoughts about the importance of advocacy. But first, this message. Every step forward transforms into something bigger. United Way Suncoast multiplies our community impact, creating powerful outcomes that individuals need to thrive. With every donation, every volunteer hour, and every advocate, United Way Suncoast creates opportunities today, transforms lives tomorrow, and builds a more equitable future for generations to come. United we rise. United we win. When it comes to legislation and lawmaking, the complexities and challenges have never been greater. But government cannot do it alone, and neither can United Way and the rest of the nonprofit sector. That's why United Way Suncoast actively engages in public policy advocacy to develop partnerships that include local, state, and federal governments, along with the private and nonprofit sectors. One example, we're working hard to bring together municipalities dealing with the eviction crisis, and the collaborative energy from those discussions is leading to opportunities for greater efficiency, providing emergency rental assistance for residents and landlords. The reality is that when it comes to building a better society, there's more that unites us than divides us. Our belief is that most leaders and most people want to promote education, increase access to income and housing, and give people the freedom to rise. How we go about creating these opportunities can be a subject for a debate, but we know engaging government leaders can make a difference in that debate. Our determination brought representatives from 28 United Ways to Tallahassee for our annual Capital Days event in November. Our drive to create lasting community impact continues to spur our advocacy as we seek improvements in a number of areas, including housing, early learning, and financial stability. In our advocacy efforts, United Way Suncoast doesn't stand alone. We bring together the best organizations and individuals to tackle our greatest challenges. Our working families deserve no less from the broader community, and United Way Suncoast will continue to deliver for them. Join us because, as you know, united we rise, united we win.